Hey folks, this is Anatoly, and you're listening to the Solana Podcast. And today I have Jason Keats with me, who's the CEO and co-founder of Awesome. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be here. Glad to chat everything we've been working on finally. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's been kind of a crazy journey. You have like a kind of an awesome background. Do you mind just sharing it? <laughs> yeah, I, I've had a very weird hardware background throughout my career. When I left Berkeley, I decided I wanted to go build something. I didn't want to sit in front of a computer all day. And so my degree is in astrophysics from Berkeley. And uh, then I went on to work on solar panels. How did you get from astrophysics to hardware? So... My senior year, my professor asked me to, he knew I had access to a machine shop because I was working with the uh, Formula SAE, which is a student racing program. And so they knew I had access to a machine shop and they wanted to make parts for telescopes. So I offered and said, hey, I I can do that. And so instead of being a traditional GSI or something like that, I was the monkey who machined random parts. (laughs) And that that was a lot more fun. Like at the end of the day, instead of having a program, I was like, I have a thing. It's built. And that was it. I wanted to build things. That's awesome. (laughs) How did you get into astrophysics then? Like what was the reason for getting into (laughs) astrophysics? You know, I just wanted to be able to say I was a a rocket scientist was the logic I had. 18-year-old me had. Little did I know that that wasn't exactly how that worked, but it sure sounded cool. And and nowadays it just sounds really cool to say, oh, I have a degree in astrophysics from Berkeley. That, That does sound really cool. So what happened after? You you built <laughs> telescopes, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I built little bits and bobs for telescopes. I graduated. I didn't want to get a real job, so I started a motorcycle company that was a complete disaster. <laughs> Not a complete disaster, but it was, it was pretty rough. I, I learned a lot about running a company there. Basically, I learned all the things you're not supposed to do. I mean, that's the the first one, right? You're supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad it didn't hurt me too badly. And then I ended up being a consultant for a company in Silicon Valley. It was like a design engineering consultancy. And they put me on to uh, Solyndra, which was a solar panel company. And that was a very fun couple of years, building some really interesting technology and honing the skills that I use today and some of the ethos that I still use today. Because one of the things we were trying to do was how do you make a solar panel easier to install? Because right now it's it's quite a time-consuming process. And so my goal was to design a solar array that could be installed with no tools. And we were successful in that. that that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that the, the whole episode. <laughs> Two years on of creating the name and it still doesn't get old. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting is so eventually Solyndra, excuse me, uh, went, went belly up, unfortunately. Uh, that, that could be 10 podcasts probably as to what happened there. But uh, my boss at the time was like, cool, uh, we need to go over to Apple right away. And so I think that was a Wednesday the company went bankrupt. And on Monday, I was at working on secret, secret projects at Apple. So there's like a period of how many years of what you can't talk about? <laughs> uh, a few years, actually. And actually, I know for a fact that program's still ongoing and is still super secret. That's pretty cool. What did you work on at Apple that you can talk about? Uh, so when I started at Apple, my l- first project was on Mac PD doing the last generation of the MacBook Air, which I mean, uh, people still review that as one of the best laptops ever made. Uh, and I'm still quite proud of that. It was a very difficult project with a very small team, uh, but it was very successful. And at some point in between MacBook Air and the little tiny MacBook, I was asked to help on a small project with Johnny Ive, which was the Leica infrared camera. And it was myself and one other mechanical engineer working with the ID team designing this, what was supposed to be a two or three week project. 
And uh, six months later, I had my own office where we were doing prototypes of little tiny bits and pieces because Johnny wanted it perfect. And uh, that really kind of made my career at Apple was working on that project with the studio directly. Is that camera like something you can buy now? I mean, if you got a few million bucks. No, we only made one camera and it was purchased at auction for around $2 million, if I recall correctly. I think it's on display somewhere. It was super cool. It had so many bits and pieces that were just absolutely ridiculous. The whole thing was handmade. My favorite little anecdote about that is the tolerances were so tight that it needed to be hand assembled in a very particular way. And so if the owner who currently has it decides it needs to be repaired or refurbished for whatever reason, if they decide to actually use a $2 million camera, there's a little post-it inside that says, call Jason (laughs) 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 with my phone number. (laughs) Eventually, you're going to get like a call at 3 a.m. <laughs> I, I do know who has it, and uh, we, we do travel in the same circle, so I'm sure there's a day where I'm be like, hey, uh, I built your camera. <laughs> and then from there, I joined iPad, which was a whole other journey, and learning a little bit more about mobile, having come from solar panels and motorcycles and desktop products and laptops t- into iPad uh, was a lot of fun. And my first real claim to fame in iPad was... Uh, leading architecture on the original iPad Pro, which is the original 12.9-inch iPad. And it was a lot of fun because we got to try a lot of different things. A funny story there, though, that totally you know, and a lot of people who follow me know, I'm huge into racing and cars, and I do a lot of silly things. And we actually built in carbon fiber speaker caps inside the iPad Pro. And Apple marketing made this big spiel about, oh, it's stiffer, it does this, it does that. That's all BS. Uh, it's because I like carbon fiber because I like race cars and that's why we used it. (laughs) And I'm sure there's some marketing guy going, no, but that's the honest truth as to why there are carbon fiber speaker caps in the iPad pro. I, you know, I I ride bikes, all the, all the cool bikes are carbon fiber. Um, so, (laughs) but it was a lot of work and it was a lot of fun. It was really interesting, but, uh, I, I got really sick of the bureaucracy at Apple. It wasn't for me. And one day somebody was interviewing for my team at Apple and they told me about what was going on at playground which was Andy Rubin's new uh, incubator. And I thought that was super, super interesting. So I just straight up cold called Andy on LinkedIn and was like, hey, I've done this stuff. I'm interested in getting out of the Apple ecosystem. Let's talk. And the next day I got a call from their recruiter and I went and interviewed a week later and they were like, hey, we have something. We can't tell you anything about it, but can you wait like two months? We're going to give you a job. And I said, cool. Uh, So for that two months, I went off and worked on Apple Maps, which was a Everybody goes, what the hell were you doing in Apple Maps? I was designing all the things you see, like the rooftop boxes and the things that went in the planes and the balloons that went up in the sky. We built some really weird stuff to capture images for Apple Maps. That's cool. Wow. I mean, like, there is a hardware component to Apple Maps that people don't don't realize. Yeah, all that stuff has to be captured somewhere. I mean, there's, there's warehouses full of hard drives of people having to still to like go through that data and make sure it's okay to use. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so yeah, after Apple, I went and joined Andy Rubin at uh, what was, what were we called? We were called Ninja Army for the first like five months. And then eventually became known as Essential. I was the technically the first hire, but the second employee at Essential. And was was there from the very beginning to the very end. It was a hell of a ride. We built the Essential PH1, which was a really, really, really exceptional piece of hardware with some pretty crap software on it, unfortunately. Uh, Particularly the camera side needed a lot of work and unfortunately was released too early. And we could argue for days about what the reason was, but uh, ultimately that was the end result of that. And we never managed to bring another product to market despite building some really cool hardware there. 
Yeah, man, launching hardware is hard. <laughs> why, why, did, why, why, why did you decide to do this again? <laughs> you know, the biggest product that we built, that, or the coolest product, no, it was actually the smallest, the coolest product we designed at Essential was Project Gem. And we were working on that up until the very end. And that was so revolutionary in the terms of mobile experience. And which taught all of us that there was really an opportunity here. Like there were still things to be done and new things to be invented and new ways of interacting to be made available. And so when Essential went out of business, when Andy told me that was that, it was obvious to me that I need to take this opportunity now. If I'm going to do it, I have a team available that I know is now (laughs) all unemployed and let's keep them together and build something really, really cool. And so I grabbed the key team members and then kept a few on the back burner while we raised money. And we got to the point where we were ready to rock and start building a new phone. And so while the first phone is a little more traditional device, I think in the future we're going to have some really crazy things to build with you guys. Yeah, that that um, I have no doubts. The gem thing was like a pretty weird piece of hardware, right? It was like kind of looked almost like a totally made out of glass. It, yeah. So this is one of those things that I love showing off in person is that glass phone. It was a glass unibody, which has never been done in a cell phone before. The overall shape was, I mean, the best description is either a candy bar mixed with a, a Apple TV remote. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a great <laughs> description. Yeah, a piece of glass, size of a candy bar <laughs> that kind of looks like an Apple TV remote. Exactly. But it was all one piece of glass. Even the camera bump, the flash, everything was a continuous piece of glass. And every hardware engineer I've shown that to goes, how did you make this? And how did you manage to achieve the tolerances required to build that? And it took a lot of work with our good friends at Corning and a third party in China, but we were able to build them. And there's a couple hundred of them in existence. I think they're all in Andy's garage still, except for the two that are in my my possession still. And they work. Some of the issues we were encountering was that uh, GMS, wouldn't, we wouldn't be approved for GMS with that device. So we were going to have to do some new and novel use cases there and come up with all new ways to interact with the device. So awesome! You guys are started with a like a really strong focus on privacy. Yeah, was that like your decision, or like kind of something that was just you guys wanted to do it essential, anyways? No, that was definitely my decision and the decision of the team. You know, we looked at what killed essential. A big part of that was a lack of focus, other than building cool stuff. And that only gets you so far. There needs to be a reason why your customers want to join our adventure rather than go with a Samsung or LG or HTC or Motorola or whatever was available at that time. And so we realized that a big problem facing everybody today is a lack of consumer privacy. And that's when we came to the conclusion that we could actually address that as an OEM. And that's a really tough challenge because you still probably want to keep like Google services around. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's a great segue into what things that people keep asking us since we announced our partnership is when we decided to say, okay, we're going to build a privacy centric phone. There have been privacy centric devices attempted in the past, but they were too extreme. By cutting out GMS, by cutting out Android, in some cases, you were left with a device that was so private, nobody would use it, which yeah, it works as a privacy device, but you don't sell any. I mean, I know for a fact that there are two different phone manufacturers who sold less than a thousand devices, uh, despite putting tens of millions of dollars into it, uh, because we all use the same suppliers. So the suppliers are uh, excellent sources of information. <laughs> and so I, I know for a fact that one of them was like, oh, we only shipped a thousand speakers to that company. So what we said was, we're going to give you control and we're going to give the user control and we're going to give them options and they can make the choice as to how much they want to share or not share. 
And if they want to use Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and every Google service, then at least they have knowledge that they're doing that and is less secure than not doing it. Or they are consciously making that decision. And that goes to what we've talked about is we're going to do the same with all the Solana mobile stack that we're integrating into the phone. We're not taking anything away. We're giving users an excellent device, a high-end flagship device that gives them more options and more choice in how they use it and what they use it for. So, you know, if you're like, if you've been a Web3 dev, you've been building applications and you've never started with like, I need to collect a username and an email and a password. (laughs) (laughs) That just like concept doesn't exist. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And And that's something that, being building like in crypto for the last four years, I almost forgot how to build like traditional <laughs> applications. And when I had to like remember, I was like, oh man, yeah, there's like, there just doesn't seem a way to build like privacy without really kind of starting from the ground up and building a whole new set of applications that people actually use. Right. And then have like some deliver like value to those users, right? People use them because they love them. Yeah. But you kind of need to start from the ground up. And that, that, that's really, really hard because getting product market fit, building applications and then competing with existing services is just like a uphill climb. Yeah. Absolutely. Building that community, which was what made our partnership so beautiful is you have that community and you have that development group that really wants to be actively involved and emotionally involved. And that's super exciting for us to be like, hey, let's give you a piece of hardware that you can call home too. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time, honestly, I've seen anyone tweet that they will stop using an <laughs> Apple product <laughs> and yeah. switch to Android. <laughs> that, that, that is exciting. If we can crack 5% instead of the tra- standard 4%, I will be absolutely ecstatic. Yeah, that would, that would be awesome. Yeah, I, I remember when the iPhone launch and that was a real watershed moment. Like a lot of us, like I was working on Brew and a lot of us were actually like felt really frustrated with the mobile industry because we had all these ideas. We wanted to build rich applications with like that are easy to code and like totally different kind of UIs, dynamic UIs and stuff. And these big telcos would give us like 200 page spec of what a phone should look like because they knew they knew their customers. And there was like this moment where Apple announced this thing that and you know Steve Jobs showed look there's a browser it's a real internet it's <laughs> not this leather shit <laughs> yeah it's not like the the mobile web that I don't know if people remember what that even looked like on a LG flip phone <laughs> that was uh, I do yeah that that was a big deal <laughs> I don't know if we're there yet with crypto like I don't know if there's a a single application or anything like that that when people open up and they're like oh wow this is a this is it. Because obviously, when Apple announced the iPhone, it was already after the internet was big, right? That everybody was already yeah. using the internet, and there was this obvious gap between desktop and mobile. I think when people actually like pay with tokens for for like their day to day stuff, and all that whole loop works, and it and it's beautiful and doesn't suck, I think that might like open open up people to new ideas of what, what we can do with crypto on a mobile device that actually supports it natively. Yeah, the, the day that both of our parents can go and shop with tokens will be a watershed moment for crypto. <laughs> I am uh, I am really excited about that. Yeah, when I think about the potential there, I mean, we, you and I have talked about it a few times. It, it's immense and almost a little bit intimidating and staggering what the obvious potential is there. So what kind of hardware, what else do you want to build besides a phone? 
Uh, <laughs> you don't have to announce anything, but you personally, ah. as somebody that's a super hardware nerd, if you had infinite budget and could do whatever you want, what would you build? <laughs> Number one, I want to bring back Project Gem. I, I loved using that phone. I'm probably the only person on earth that used that phone regularly for a while because I wanted to make sure it was great. And that thing worked so much better than anybody ever gave it potential credit for as a small side device, as something you could toss in your pocket in your bag and not think about. It was beautiful. I mean, for me, designing a piece of hardware has to also be very physically attractive. And I think that was the most beautiful thing I've ever designed. I do want to see the expansion of using your mobile devices, be it your watch or your phone, interacting with the automotive sector. Obviously, we chatted about it before. (laughs) I have a problem when it comes to cars. So I think in a relationship between mobile, crypto, and automotive is is even earlier than anything else in crypto, but there's a hell of an opportunity there. And thankfully, a lot of the automotive companies are starting to catch on and realize there's different potential there. What would be like a, a, thing, a hardware integration between mobile and, and cars? I see, and, and I mean, we've already patented this idea, so I will talk about it freely now, <laughs> is the ability to track all your history of your vehicle when you sell your vehicle, you have everything written to the blockchain. The NFT itself will simply be a photo or, or a connection to the title, which is held somewhere else. But you can guarantee that if somebody sends you a NFT of a title, that it is tied to a physical object, which we've already patented that as well. So you want like the, you know, like the miles, like the RPMs, like the actual raw data. I don't know what else you get. I'm not a car person. <laughs> like uh, the service history or the maintenance history, the sales history. Do you know if the mile, you, you can guarantee that the miles weren't rolled back. You can know if it, if it went through any recall notices, anything with service was done. It, that's a real utility of that technology. And like the kind of cars that people would really want this for are like collectibles, right? Like classic cars that you know, like you're getting, you, you're getting what you're paying for. Yeah, I think so. But also with, you know, your average Toyota or Civic, at least you know that what the history was on that car. Was it repaired? Was it damaged at any given point? There, There is utility across the board. Last thing on that one, especially if we go into the collectibles, like being able to take a cut down the road. Okay, I sell the car to you, you sell it to somebody else, and I'm still, I can take a, a fraction of a percent of that sale. It's pretty awesome. If you're restore, if you're the person restoring the car, right, and you did this, yeah. like, yeah, that, that's actually like, it's weird, like that that model has never been replicated in the real world, but works so well with NFTs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's a use case that I think is way underexplored for stuff like that, for for physical art. Yeah, it's one of the things that we patented early on was the connection between a physical and digital assets. Do you think Apple or Google care about what we're doing right now? Is this like reached like anyone's decision making yet, or is it still too early? I know for a fact that our name has come up in both those companies because I know a lot of people at the highest level. And uh, one of my good friends is an SVP at Apple. And he texted me. He's like, they're talking about you in an executive meeting. <laughs> I was like, cool, that I've made it in life. Are they talking about suing me, though? <laughs> and I'm sure Google has people thinking about it and worrying about it. I mean, obviously, Google is still a partner because we are a GMS device. And they are thrilled to have us being an advocate for the Android ecosystem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think... If if we convert people from iOS to Android, 
Google should be like for making parades for for awesome and Solana. It's serious. I haven't asked yet, but I should I should ask them like, hey, if I if we convert more than the standard four percent, do I get a bonus from Google? That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm not like too worried. I guess I don't really. Th- they're so big that it doesn't seem like there's anything to worry about because. They're just like, it's like worrying about, I don't know, nation state at this point. Yeah, exactly. For a startup, it's such a big competitor that it's not even a competitor. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the companies that people often compare us to or talk about us, like Nothing or um, Oppo and OnePlus, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do is make sure I have a good relationship with those companies as well, because it's kind of silly for a bunch of startups to be fighting over the scraps instead of taking swings at Apple, Google and Samsung in terms of device sales. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, OnePlus made some awesome devices, too. That was really cool to see them them launch when like when I was working on Android at Qualcomm, there was just always like this huge gap between quality and like innovation in terms of like how the device looks and feels. And, and they were they were able to like really push the limits there. Yeah. Well, I think our, our next devices will be uh, pushing some new limits, which will be a lot of fun. Do you think like mobile because it's so big, is there still room to innovate in terms of hardware? Besides like, like you know, like on, on the standard daily driver. Yeah, now that I'm the CEO and I have other teams of people now working for me, pushing vision, I can spend a little more time thinking about how I want to change that interaction of device, what new technologies are out there, or even what new use cases of existing technologies there are. And so I have been working on something wholly new for how we interact with our devices in a way that I think will people will naturally uh, enjoy using. It's a bit of technology that'll change how you actually touch and use your device, but it'll be done in a form factor in a manner that makes it approachable. And it's not a a foldable because I think that's kind of silly most of the time. (laughs) Foldable's not also not sure about them. I I really like the steel on on the Saga phone. Why did you guys pick steel? Two reasons. Number one, we didn't want to go titanium like we did on the Essential phone. It was a little too exactly the same, but we couldn't go to aluminum because it just doesn't have the same touch. It doesn't have the same feel. It doesn't have the same strength. It doesn't have the same feel, which I want to feel a premium device when I pick up a phone that I engineered and aluminum loses that a little bit. It's a little, it's not stiff enough for my taste. And so we landed on steel for the housing and then we landed on ceramic because we still did want a little tie back to essential, but also because it does feel premium. It looks premium. It's not paint. It's not glass. It's real ceramic. It's incredibly tough. It's very hard. And it does well in drop while also allowing to be RF transparent and just, I mean, ultimately looking and feeling super premium to your fingers. When you make those decisions, like how many logistics need to change? <laughs> like how many companies, suppliers, machines, like how how big of a like a process is that? Less now than it was five years ago, but it's still it's because I have the team behind me that is incredibly capable of making it happen. Where we have a ridiculous uh, Rolodex, a contact list for everybody under twenty five, of people to call for different materials and different processes. The big one is, as you saw on the first EVT devices, first stainless devices, they were quite heavy. So one of the big changes we had to do was we had optimized for aluminum on the very, very first prototypes. We switched to stainless, but we didn't change our cutter paths. We didn't change our processes. So into the current build, we've made a lot of changes to ensure that we bring the weight down just the right amount, uh, but still have a super strong device. 
are those separate companies like the company that makes the cutters and like stamps the thing and like puts on the ceramic like if you went from ceramic to some to glass would that how many how big of a logistical nightmare is that <laughs> uh if we if we switch over to glass it's a different company that would manufacture and process the material. And then because it's glass, we'd have to also find a paint shop to paint the device. Whereas ceramic has that color baked in literally. Okay. So you, so you have to do like a bunch of work. It's not just one company that you go to and they're like, sure, we can do everything. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't exist as much as we'd love to. Uh, it's all over the place in Asia. We Prior to the pandemic, I probably would have spent the last 10 months living in and out of China. Most of the stuff is in China or like all over Asia at this point? A lot of the supply chain comes out of China, but that doesn't mean we're manufacturing there. We have plants or factories both in China and in uh, Vietnam, but it's still all in Asia. Any chance for that stuff to ever happen in the U.S.? Or is it just like the world is like manufacturing shifted irreparably? I have had a few conversations with the Canadian government about this. I think the U.S. will be still quite difficult, but uh, in Canada it might be possible. But the biggest issue is all the subcomponents are still made in Asia. So even if you were doing final assembly in North America, you still have to ship all the individual components from Asia. Your SOC is going to come out of TSMC, which is in Taipei. Your memory is going to come out of Korea. Your, the display will come out of either Indonesia or China. And there's no manufacturing plants for all those components anywhere in the Western world. And like actually manufacturing those components in the Western world is like impossible, right? Why, why is it impossible? Oh, God. I mean, just the billions of dollars required would be cost prohibitive to build those plants. Those fab houses are huge and would take years to build. And that's because like things have gotten so specialized in displays and, and like everything that it's just like, it's like a basically Intel like level kind of commitment. Oh yeah. I mean, you're talking massive, massive. And even the ones that are good at it already have issues now at the scales we're talking about. Like the four nanometer process, which is used to build the chip we're using in Saga is there are only two companies in the world that even understand how to make the fab devices to make those chips. Yeah, this is the the tungsten or no the tungsten droplet, like right? Like you have like a droplet that yeah. refracts UV UV light. Honestly, I'm not that familiar with that process, but yeah, it is crazy, <laughs> crazy. And like it's tried, tough to explain to people how tiny four nanometers is, and then how many traces they have to put down in a tiny little chip that we're going to put in your phone and makes everything work. How do you find these places? Like, how do you start? If you were like a 18 year old, that's like, hey, I want to build cool shit, build cool electronics. How how would you start? <laughs> I think if I were starting today, I would try to find the R and D team at either Google or Apple or a startup like Awesome, and just go like, hey, I want to be your man on the ground in Asia. And I want to grow my network. I want to go out there with a completely open mind and just be like, everybody teach me, which is how I really got out there. I said, I don't know what I'm doing on some of this stuff, but I'm a sponge. I will sit here and learn from the best. And I will be super polite because that was one of the things that used to bug me a lot as I saw people, Western people acting like jackasses with their Eastern counterparts. And now they get nowhere. And I made it a point to always, always, always be polite, always say, look, I'm here to learn. Let me help you. If I know something that I can share, I'm going to go out of my way to share it. And that has enabled me to have amazing relationships with the CEOs of all these fantastic supply companies. So it is, it's basically like a relationship thing and you have to kind of know 
what they can build and know what what they do well and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And go in there with an open mind and sometimes an open wallet <laughs> that, that always opens some doors. And expect to try to make it a, a back and forth because you get a lot further if you can say, hey, let me offer you some of my knowledge in exchange for some of your knowledge. How open are they to like startups, custom work, like these small scale projects? Because my imagination is that like they only work with like Google and they want to like sell 100 million units or whatever. Yeah, that's the other hard part. And that comes later on once you have those relationships, because if it doesn't matter who you are, if you don't have that existing relationship, they're going to laugh you out of the building if they even let you in the door. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> if you if your dream of building awesome hardware you got to start like work for somebody like awesome or R&D team. That's pretty good advice. I think it's the only way to build those relationships so you know who to call. And I think a big part of it is it's not always the CEO you need to talk to. You need to talk to his right-hand guy. You need to talk to the CTO. You need to know the right person to talk to at each company. And it changes a little bit. And you'll you learn who the movers and shakers are, the people who can actually make things happen for you. And that's where it gets super interesting. And it takes boots on the ground to learn that. Still true for big companies. As you get bigger, you still just need to keep those relationships going. You know, it's interesting. If you want to innovate, you need to. If you just want to just keep grinding out the same BS you've been doing for 20 years, they'll usually just give you the C team and you can just grind and nobody moves anything. Yeah, the innovation part is hard. How long is like the innovation cycle in hardware? Anywhere from days to years. I have been on the backside of things where it's like, oh, I have an idea. Actually, that was super easy to implement. Okay, let's do it. It's done. Uh, but I've also, making the glass housing for GEM was an 18-month project to get the tolerance that we need to hold. For everybody who's listening, you need to hold 100 microns is pretty standard, a tenth of a millimeter. How many human hairs is that? Uh, less than one. <laughs> you know? you, you, we need to hold those tolerances on a piece of glass. And how glass is manufactured is that you literally take a molded part and cook it down into a shape. And you can imagine trying to hold, a, like if you're baking something in your oven, and trying to get it to stay within a hundredth of or a tenth of a millimeter, it's never going to happen. So we had to help both Corning and our third party invent new technologies to achieve that result. That's pretty cool. I wonder, like, are people using these technologies anywhere else, or is this something that like is is like basically just only was built for job? Uh, I think they're still using. There are not a lot of applications where you need a deep draw, weird uh, aspect ratio glass part, but I know they're using it for. 2.5D or even light 3D shapes, it at least allowed them to make 3D shapes that weren't as extreme as Gem in a more uh, factory-friendly manner. Super cool. You guys also have like a, a pretty awesome software team. Yeah. Like, and you guys did a lot of work on actually adding privacy features to, to the Android stack. What are these privacy features? Uh, you know, I, I'd love to have Gary answer that question if he were here. But uh, mostly what we wanted to do is allow the user to just be more aware of where their data is going and how it's being treated by any web page they go, any app they use, and alert them if more data than they expect is going out and a place where they can work within their device where they can guarantee that nothing is going out that they don't control, which we haven't named yet because somebody stole our name. But <laughs> And then the other one that I love that I cannot wait to use more of is uh, what we called Lockdown, but then Google used that name for what they were doing. But uh, it, the ability to just turn off any module on the phone when you want to. And what do you mean by module? Right now, I think in Lockdown mode that Google offers, you can turn off the camera and mic. But we can turn off the camera, the mic, the antennas, the USB port, 
whatever um, a module is any piece of hardware on the device we can individually completely disable that that's really cool and does the user have a physical notification that that thing's turned off like is there are there like leds or something that light up yeah we're still working on that with your team as to what those notifications will look like what that ui and ux looks like but yeah there are both physical haptic feedback as well as visual feedback can you like turn off like gps and like things like that and, and like other sensors or like i guess the rate the gps radio i don't know if the, how baked how baked in that is these days it's actually super 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 baked in uh one of our investors was is an apple employee and i was explaining to him like look man you can put your phone in airplane mode that gps is still working and he's like bs and I'm like, no, 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 watch, watch, watch. Put your phone in airplane mode. And we were on a bicycle ride. Like, go bike like 100 yards down the road and see your phone is still tracking you. And he's like, what the hell? Uh, and the next day he invested. <laughs> <laughs> you guys work with mostly non-crypto people, like up until you met you. me. I yeah, think. basically. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. What is What has that like conversation been like? What, what has been their reaction? Uh, you know, it's been all over the map. It says there were some very vocal negative people outside of the company, um, which I completely expected and doesn't really bug me at all. We had surprising support within the company, to be honest. I think I told you I fully expected 10 to 20 percent of the company to be like, ah, screw this. This is ridiculous. And we really only had one person do that. And then the counter to that, the amount of support where people are like, no, this is exciting. This is the next generation of mobile will be built on Web3. And we, I think the definition of Web3 remains fairly fluid and we get to be involved with really defining what that actually means to the end user. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is like a huge opportunity for us to like set the standards and like really push for privacy first and just like build something that can be like a really good base, the building the exactly. bricks that like Web3 is built on. What was like the detractors? What was like the... You know, any points that they brought up that you think were interesting or, or worthwhile? You know, I think that was the biggest thing. It's none of the negative comments I heard were worth that much because it was the standard anti-crypto comments, which is like, oh, I don't believe in it. This is a scam. I don't, you know, I don't see it. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm not going to try to fight anybody over that. That's fine. <laughs> People thought Facebook was stupid. Frankly, I still think Facebook is a little stupid, but they sure are worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. So there is a market for it. It was really hard for me too to like accept, to like believe in Facebook in those early days too. But it's, in my mind, that is like the quintessential internet company, more so than Google. Because it, it was really like, they, all they're doing is connecting people. Right. And that's a very weird thing to think about that that could be worth half a trillion dollars or whatever it is these days. I have this analogy that like Facebook has a social graph where you have to hop through people, right? You're connected through some intermediaries, but crypto, it's all public keys, super connected, <laughs> or like a, a single censorship resistant message bus, right? Like everybody in the world is now in like a single chat. Basically, which is why it's a bit chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> but I also see why it's kind of interesting because you have that community, everybody's connected, which is inherently non private, but it is also everybody in that group has a strong desire to keep certain things private. And it's that ability to choose what you keep private and what you don't keep private, which makes this partnership so incredibly powerful. Obviously, a public data structure is a really strong forcing function for developers to to understand that like this this data is public, therefore I need to minimize how much I collect, right? It's almost like if like all your interactions are over like a public database, then 
you really, really try to know the least amount of the users that you need. And I think that's just been kind of a this design constraint on Web3 devs from day one. And you kind of forget about like Web2 and that like you need to create cookies and like store people's passwords and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And I think what we're going to bring to the fore for Web3 is that improved user experience and that UI. I mean, you and I have chatted about it almost daily lately about the issues around that and having a piece of hardware that can bypass a lot of the frustration that is there right now is huge. Agreed. Well, thank you, Jason, for being here. It's been awesome talking to you. I'm super excited to work with you. It's, it's going to be great. Folks, if you've been listening, go to solanamobile.com and pre-order the saga. <laughs> <laughs>